Well, open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Not long ago, we started going through the book of James verse by verse. James is a well-known book of the Bible because it's so practical. And today we come to what has to be the most well-known verse in this well-known book. It's a verse that succinctly cuts to the heart of the matter in James. If you had to pick just one verse to be like a theme verse of James, this would be it. It's James 1, verse 22. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Be doers of the word. And in my preparation, I read an illustration by the preacher Chuck Swindoll on this. He's known for some great illustrations, and this one was too good. I couldn't pass it up, although I've made some changes and made it my own. Picture the, the lord of a castle back in medieval Europe. He's like their king. He runs a place overseeing a small army of servants and stewards and knights. But a time comes when he must leave the castle and travel to a faraway land to form an alliance with some other lords and kings. He might be gone for six months. So he entrusts the castle to all of his servants and stewards. They will run the place and take care of things while he is gone. He doesn't have time to give them instructions, though. He's got to leave in haste. But he will write to them and give them full instructions on caring for the castle over time. So the Lord leaves, and shortly thereafter, the servants and the stewards start receiving letter after letter from the Lord, instructing them on how to care for the castle. The Lord tells them to care for the castle grounds, to trim the hedges, keep the moat filled, make sure that the drawbridge is functioning. He instructs the servants to help the peasants of the field gather their harvest and fill the castle storehouses. And he tells the knights to remain on guard, to continue their, their training, to keep their swords sharp, just to be prepared. In time, a dozen letters come from the Lord, giving them full instructions on how to care for the castle. Well, six months go by and the Lord finally returns from his long trip, but he finds the castle in complete disarray. The castle is overgrown and wild. The moat has been drained. The drawbridge is rusted shut. Meanwhile, the, the storehouses are empty. There's garbage everywhere. And the knights have put on a few pounds. Their armor is scattered. Their, their swords are dull. The place is just a mess. And it seems most of the servants have been busying themselves with games and entertainment. Some took up hobbies. And some even went on vacations of their own. So the Lord calls all the servants and stewards together and he asks them what's going on. He says, look at this place. It's a complete mess. Did you not get any of my letters? And they responded, oh, your letters? Yeah, we got every one of those. And we love them. We love your letters. In fact, we've been meeting every Friday night to have a letter study since you left. It's been a great time. We then divide up into small groups thereafter and we discuss the things you wrote. Some of us have even taken to memorizing your instructions in your letters. We, we love your letters, really enjoy them. And hearing this, the Lord was a bit confused and taken back. And he said to them, oh, okay, I, I guess I'm glad you enjoy my writing so much, but what did you do about them? What did we do about them? The servants responded, well, we didn't do anything. You know, this le level of inaction and passivity is absurd. These servants and stewards completely failed their Lord, but they deceived themselves into thinking he would be pleased simply because they loved his writings, his letters to them. 
We can only imagine these servants who would be fired or worse. But this story is no mere hypothetical. This has been the experience of countless Christians throughout the history of the church. We have such a propensity to be hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. In the church today, we as God's servants, we love his words. We love all the letters he gave to us. We study them. We even memorize them. But do we do them? Do we heed them? Many don't, and the result can be a type of false religion. And sadly, many are deceived into thinking they're pleasing to the Lord simply because they love his word. But the true state of their faith is revealed by their obedience to his word or lack thereof. And this is the concern of James, that we not be deceived into thinking we're right with God just because we love the Bible. You may be orthodox. You may have all the right doctrine and you might genuinely believe the truth. But if it has not resulted in a changed life, if you're not a doer of the word, then you're deceived. You're deceived into thinking it's enough just to know the word to please God. And if, if not obeying, not living out the truth, if that's the habit, if that's the characteristic of your life, you may even be deceived into thinking you know God and salvation. So James writes to warn us against this wrong response of inaction to the word of truth. In general, James is all about true faith. He gives us the picture of a true believer, one who possesses a living faith. And James understands salvation comes by faith alone. Salvation comes by faith and faith comes by hearing, not doing, but hearing. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as the result of works that no one may boast. However, the type of faith that saves always bears fruit. So you're not saved by works of obedience or righteousness. But if you have saving faith, the type of faith that saved always results in works of obedience and righteousness. Like Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, true faith works. It obeys God's standard. It lives out God's word. And this is the fundamental message of James, especially chapter two, when he really gets into it, like chapter two, verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? And the answer obviously is no, that type of faith can't save. James knows only faith can save you before God. But the point is, if, if your so-called faith bears no fruit of obedience, if it doesn't result in a changed life, you may have a, a faith, but it's not a saving faith. It's a false faith, a dead faith, a faith that cannot save. And James will expand on this teaching in chapter two, but we get our first big dose of it here, near the end of chapter 1, the character of living faith, James tells us in a short but memorable way. And so let's go ahead and read now James 1, 22 through 25, our passage for this morning. You can listen along as I read James 1, starting at verse 22. He says, but 
prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. In this passage, James is developing a pretty simple and clear contrast. This is the picture of the true believer and the false. And what separates the two? In this case, it's not the hearing of the word. Both of these people hear the word of God. The difference is that one of them then does it. The doer of the word is blessed. The hearer only is deceived. This is a simple contrast, but we need to see it. We need to be challenged by it, that we would not be deceived, and that we would be moved from complacency to action in our own faith. And so let's heed this contrast of faith from James now along just two simple points. Number one, the mere hearer of the word is deceived. The mere hearer of the word is deceived. Verse 22, again, he says, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with hearing the word of God. I hope that's obvious. Hearing is not the problem. James is not developing a contrast between the hearers and the doers, but between the hearers only and the hearers and doers. But by no means is James disparaging the hearing of the word. He made that clear back in verse 19. We, we need to hear the word. Verse 19, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. If you hear last week, you remember the context. He's talking about us hearing and receiving the word, the word of truth. We were reminded that God brought us forth by the word of truth. Verse 18 speaks of our regeneration. And then we're told to be quick to hear that word, to receive it, to take it in. Don't reject the conviction that comes from the word, but in humility, receive the word implanted. Verse 21, right? All that from last week. Now, hearing the word of God has always been extremely important. That's not the problem here. The problem is with the one who is merely a hearer. That's all they do. They stop right there. They hear, and that's it. And one commentator likened being a hearer only to auditing a college class. And that brought back some memories for myself. You know, in seminary, between the fall semester and the spring semester, they offered a little winter course. It was a semester-long class crammed into one week. And the fun part was all the lectures. That was, that was fun. You're sitting listening to some lectures, something engaging. In fact, I actually took a winterim class with a, a well-known author and theologian, Douglas Moo, on the book of James. That was great. That was fun. But the hard part came after the class because then you still had to do a semester's worth of assignments and papers and tests in a very short time. Now, later on, though, I think it was during my THM, I decided to just audit one of these winter room classes because they're free for alumni. 
And that's where you don't get any credit, but you, you get to sit in for all the lectures. And that's, that's the fun part. That's the good part. And it was great. I didn't have any homework. I didn't have to write any of the papers. Didn't have to take any of the tests. There's no pressure. I could even, you know, leave early or skip some lectures if I wanted to. There's just no expectations. And, you know, I could make fun of all the people who had to take all the tests and write the papers. Just, I was in the free and clear. And that's okay to do when you're auditing a class. That's not okay to do when it comes to the Christian life. But the problem is many treat the Christian life as if they're just auditing it. They're auditing being a Christian for a while. I mean, they go to church regularly. They listen to sermon after sermon. And maybe they even read their Bible, and that's enough, right? That's, that's all that God really wants for us. That's enough to be pleasing to Him, right? But they don't do the homework, so to speak. They do not strive to obey the will of God or live out the truth. And the word they hear on Sunday is forgotten by lunch. After church, they resume their normal life. And the things of the Lord are not revisited in their mind or in their lives until the following Sunday. This is a problem. Such a person is a pretender. If they're not living it out, we would say they actually haven't really learned anything about the Christian life. They're not a real student. And such an action is absurd, so much so that James gives a ridiculous analogy of the one who's like this, who hears and then does nothing. In verse 23, he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. James starts here by developing a simile. He's comparing a person who hears the word and doesn't do anything about it with a person who looks at his face in a mirror. Now, one thing to note, mirror back in the ancient world, they did not have mirrors like we have them today. Mirrors today are made from a piece of glass coated with reflective metal. But back then, mirrors were simply a polished metal, like bronze or gold if you were rich. But they didn't give you a perfect reflection. So if you really wanted to see yourself well, you had to stare into the mirror, almost study the image to make yourself out correctly. And that's actually what's being pictured here. This word for look is not a mere passing glance. But this person is just actively gazing into the mirror and and almost studying the image they see back. And the fact that this person gets a good long look at himself makes what happens next in verse 24 all the more ridiculous. After getting a good long look at himself, verse 24 says, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately forgets what kind of person he was. This man departs from the mirror only to immediately forget what he had just seen, what he looks like. He forgets his own image. This is a purposely ridiculous analogy where James is showing just how crazy it is for a Christian to look into God's word and see themselves and just forget it all right away. Just as soon as they're done, it's as if they never even saw it. Now, note, James's use of a mirror here, this mirror analogy, that's not random, it's not accidental, but intentional. He's connecting the mirror to God's word. This is confirmed in verse 24, where he, he substitutes the mirror for the word of God. So what's the connection between a mirror and God's word? Well, simply that it was well known back then that, that God's word functions precisely as a mirror. A mirror of the soul, that is. 
What's the function of a mirror? It shows us our image. It shows us what we're really like. And that's exactly how God's word functions in our lives. You stare into it, it shows you, you, who you really are, what you really look like. And the mirror does not lie. All of our spiritual blemishes and imperfections are revealed in high definition as we peer into the mirror of Scripture. Now, on their own, people have an inflated view of themselves, especially they're standing before God. But the mirror of Scripture gives us a true and accurate picture of of what we're really like and, and how we really stand before a perfectly holy God. This is true for salvation and sanctification. You know, for salvation, most people think on their own, they're pretty good. No, they're pretty good people. And surely God would accept someone such, as, uh, such like them, I mean, as good as them. But just one serious glance into Scripture, you'd learn otherwise. There you would see a perfectly holy God, and His standard for you is perfect righteousness, perfection. And then you'd quickly see how far short you fall of that standard. You don't measure up. You, you may not be a murderer or an adulterer. But like Jesus himself taught, if you get angry with another or lust after another, that you're guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That's his words, Matthew five twenty two. You see, we need the mirror of the word, though, to show us our total depravity, to reveal how we are completely lost and helpless, that we then might embrace the Savior, the good news. See, people must be humbled and shown the depth of their sin problem before this God, that they might truly embrace the Savior and and turn to Christ in wholehearted trust and dependence. That's what's required for salvation. And so God uses the mirror of the word to do that humbling to show people they need Christ. And the mirror of the word is also helpful for sanctification. You know, for those in Christ, we may be saved, but we still wrestle with sin in this life. Our goal is to glorify God by becoming conformed more and more into the image of Christ. We still have a long way to go. But here too, staring into the word of God, it shows us all the ways we fail to measure up. We see in in scripture, the perfect image of Christ stacked up against our image where we're at. And we realize, well, we, we still blow it. We still fall short, but that convicts us and shows us the ways we need to change and grow and strive. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. But you see, James is highlighting here the problem with the person who does all that, but stops there. They stop with looking into the mirror of the word and they see all the ways they they fall short of Christ, but then they do nothing about it. They've got step one down. They read the Bible. They're studying the word. They're listening to sermons and the word is doing its work. It's revealing their spiritual picture. It's convicting them of the ways they fall short. All the spiritual blemishes that need to change. That's a good thing. But then this person quickly forgets all that conviction and does nothing about what they heard. Let's say you heard a sermon on on the need for constant prayer in the life of a Christian. And in response, you were convicted. 
And a little voice inside you says, you know, I need to pray more. I never pray for other people. I have no prayer life. That's good. The word is doing its job. It is showing you perhaps one of your faults and then convicting you. That's the job of the mirror of the word. That's a, that's a good thing. That's a mercy. And to this, the right response would be to repent of your prayerlessness and change. By God's grace and the power of the Spirit, you would take action to implement prayer in your life and you would grow and God would be glorified. The wrong response would be to just say, you know, I should probably do that. And then just go about your day and quickly forget that little word of conviction by lunchtime. And sadly, I think this is the common response, though. It's like you forget everything you hear. Maybe someone catches up with you on Monday and they say, hey, I missed church. What was the sermon about? And you think to yourself for a second, like, well, um, you know, I, I can't think of it right now. It's escaping me. It's like all that learning, all that conviction just vanished. And look, this forgetfulness happens to all of us, myself included at times. We are a forgetful, fallen people. But it ought not be this way, right? It ought not be this way. And if such inaction is your habitual practice, if you never obey the word of God, then you're in a much greater danger. Think of ancient Israel. After God redeemed them, he gave them his law. And he exhorted them countless times to what? To remember it. To remember him to be careful to observe all that he said, to not forget, which really means don't neglect it. And James speaks of this forgetfulness in verse 23 or 24. And this forgetfulness, it's not purely intellectual. It's not talking about like it actually leaves your mind. It's where you know better, you just don't do anything about it. You neglect to carry it out. It's like God told Israel in Deuteronomy 8 verse 11, He said, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. That's how you forget God. Don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. So you can know the right thing to do intellectually, but if you don't actually do it, you have effectively forgotten the Lord. And to neglect to carry out God's word, if that's the story of your life, that's a dangerous proposition. God later warned Israel in verse 19. He said, I shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. And that's precisely what happened to ancient Israel, by the way, as you surely know. Moses had delivered them God's word, complete with the Ten Commandments. Remember what they said right after that. He comes down, gives them the Ten Commandments, some instructions. Remember how the people responded? Exodus 24, 3, they they said together with one voice, all that the Lord has said, we will surely do. The whole people committed together like, yeah, we're going to do that. Those Ten Commandments and all the other commandments, we we will do everything the Lord said. And just a short while later, they're worshiping a golden calf. They were deceived, like James says. They were merely hearers, and they deluded themselves, like many people do today. This word for deluded here, paralogizomai, 
It speaks of those who reason falsely in their mind. It's a middle participle, which means you're doing it to yourselves. You're deceiving yourself. This is the person who, you know, they, they hear the word, but then they play games in their mind, maybe even as they're listening, to try and, you know, wiggle out of it and justify like that. That doesn't really apply to me, though. I'm the exception here. And they, they find a way to just escape the conviction, to escape doing anything. They are self-deluded, deceived, he says. You know, first, such people are deceived into thinking that God is pleased simply because they've heard his word. But that is false. Now, of course, God wants us to hear his word, but you realize it's a means to an end. You know, this whole thing we're doing like right now, the preaching of the word, that itself is a means to an end. What's the end? Bearing fruit. God wants you to bear fruit. He wants us to obey, to worship him by observing his will. God wants to see Christ formed in us, and you have to actually live out all of Christ's ways. Like Jesus said in John 15, 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and prove to be my disciples. And the danger, though, is that some feel they've done enough just by looking into the mirror of the word, and that's it. They've identified maybe some things that need to change, and we all have plenty of things that need to change, but they don't do anything about it. Many reason that all they need to do to be right with God is, you know, show up at church every now and then, smile, nod, tell the preacher, nice sermon. And sometimes they even really love a good sermon, but they never change. They never live it out. Just understand that's not enough. God is not pleased by that at all. That person is deceived. And this can lead to a second deception, which is, like I said before, much more serious. For such people who habitually forget the word of God, which is to say they never do anything about it. That the characteristic of their life is a lack of obedience, a lack of living it out. Well, it calls into question their salvation. They may be deceived into thinking that they're truly Christ's disciples, that they're actually even saved. Like Christ himself said, you know, bearing fruit, that doesn't save us. But the one who bears fruit proves to be his disciple. So what does that say about the so-called disciple who never bears any fruit? It says they're not actually a disciple. They're not saved. They've never been born again. And scripture confirms this conclusion time and time again. And I want to show this to you. Obedience to the word of God. That doesn't save you, but it's always the measure of a saving faith. John 15, 14, Christ said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And then John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now let's keep those two together. 15, 14 and 14, 15 in John. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then he said in John 14, 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. But he who does not love me does not keep my words. 
I've met a lot of Christians who say they love God, but they're not living in his ways at all. They're not even trying. And so I'll take them to these passages and I'll, and I'll show them, you know, according to Christ, you do not love God or Christ. I've said it many times, you know, how does Christ spell love? Do you remember? O-B-E-Y. That's how he, he spells love in these verses. It's how you show your love for him. Or think of 1 John 1, 5 and 6. He says, this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. But if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He calls that person a liar. How are they a liar? Well, they lie in saying that they have fellowship with this God. But you see, they don't practice the truth. They're still living in darkness. So you know what? They don't have fellowship with this God who is light. They prove they're still cut off from God and enslaved by sin. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. John continues in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. He says, by this we know that we've come to know him. Notice that verse. It's not how we know him. We know him by faith, but he says, by this, we know that we have come to know him. This is a a verse on assurance of salvation. So what is it? How do we know that we're truly saved? One big way, he says, if we keep his commandments, if we keep his commandments, we're not saved by law keeping, but we are assured by the life that results of faith of keeping his commandments. Keeping his commandments is is a big way we know we have been saved. He says in verse 4, The one who says, I have come to know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And how clear is that? But how many people are like that? I know God, but they do not keep his commandments. And that's talking about habitual life, the practice of their life. They're just a liar. They don't really know him. Because if they knew him, and if the truth was in them, they would walk in the light. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. It's just what it means to be a disciple. You know, are delighted to walk in the footsteps of Christ. You, you want to follow in his ways. You love his word and his will, and you are happy to carry it out. That's the one in whom the love of Christ has been perfected. This is actually quite simple teaching, but I pray this lesson is burned into your heart that you never be deceived or to deceive yourself into thinking it's enough to just hear, but not then do. And no one taught this as picturesquely as Christ himself. You remember Matthew 7, 19 and following. He's speaking of false believers here. He says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. By he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name, cast out 
many demons. In your name, perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, what? Lawlessness. These people had a profession of faith, but not a possession of faith. They were pretenders and phonies made clear by their practice. They claim to be religious. They even claim to work signs and wonders. But the practice of their life was what? Lawlessness. And therefore, they, didn't obey, uh, they did not bear fruit. They didn't obey God. They did not live out the faith they professed. All of which proved they didn't really know Jesus and he sure did not know them. And the only thing they will meet is judgment and being sent away from the kingdom. Great will be their fall. Christ said right after this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Those are those who hear his words, but then don't act on them. If this describes you, you may have a rude awakening coming, but better to be awakened right now is genuinely repent and turn to Christ in a true faith. There's no greater danger for, than for a person to believe they're right with God when they're actually still lost. It's like someone who thinks they're perfectly healthy, but they're actually dying. But do not be deceived. The mere hearer of the word is deceived and will only find God's discipline and judgment. There's hope. We're saved by grace. We all fall short and and we come to him for grace. But do not be so deceived to think that hearing about saving grace is enough. You must believe and then you prove that belief by living it out. This is the test. What will you do with God's word? And this forms a contrast between the true and the false, which brings us to number two, a second point. The doer of the word is blessed. The mere hearer of the word is deceived, but number two, the doer of the word is blessed. Let's finish a look at verse 25. The last verse in our passage here, verse 25 again. He says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Who is the blessed one? It's the one who hears the word and then does it. The doer of the word is blessed. This is a favorite word of James, the doer. It refers to one who continually carries out God's word and will. They're not a spectator in the class. They're an active participant. And James illustrates this person in verse 25. But notice he drops the mirror analogy and he opts for a straight comparison that this person, they're looking straight into the law of the Lord, this law of liberty, and abides by it. The one who looks into the word of God and then abides by it, that's the blessed one. Now, real quick, you might be wondering what's meant here by this perfect law, the law of liberty. And I'll give you the short answer here, and I'll save the long answer for James 2. Because in chapter 2, he's going to bring up the law of liberty again, and he'll talk more about the law. And so we'll, we'll talk more about the law then as well. 
But in short, this is merely a reference to the word of God. The, the same word of truth from verse 18. Now, it might sound like a paradox to speak of a law of liberty. Because we normally think of the law as restricting our liberty, as keeping us from doing the things we want to do. So the law restricts our freedom. And the Old Testament law was a burden in that regard. But this law of liberty refers to the new covenant. It's that the will of God per the new covenant. The old covenant that God gave to Israel, they only violated it. That's because it was external and it did nothing to change their hearts. But remember what God promised with the coming of the new covenant. He promised that he would give his people a new heart, that he would give them his spirit, and also what? That he would take his word and write it on their very hearts. He would take his will and put it inside of them. And in that manner, he would cause us to walk in his ways. It's Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. We'll we'll do the long version later, right? But you see, God is going to bring about our obedience. He doesn't do so, however, by forcing us against our will. As if we're robots. We're not. And we're not made to obey some burdensome law. Rather, what God does for us now in Christ is he just changes our natures. He gives us a new will. Such that now in Christ, if you're born again, you love his word. You love his laws, his standard of righteousness. Like you're all about that. You want to obey because you realize it's just, it's good. It's right. It's pleasing to him. It's good for me. You love his will and his righteousness. And we're still sinners, but the spirit within us now wants to obey God and walk in his ways. In that regard, the burden is removed. It's like you're free to do whatever you want to do. If, if your desires align with God's will perfectly, you're totally free to do whatever you want to do. And you'll never sin because you don't want to sin. That's the ideal standard, right? That's the picture here, though. The law is only a burden that restricts our freedom when we want to disobey it. But if your desires align with the law of God, it's no longer a burden. It's just really a, it's a safeguard. For example, I am very happy to obey car seat laws for infants. It does not feel like a law to me. I really don't even know if it's, a, well, I know it's an official law, but it doesn't feel that way because I want to obey it. And that law actually gives me freedom from fear, from danger. And so it goes with this perfect law of liberty. This is the law of Christ. And like I said, we'll learn more about it in chapter two. But the point now that James is making is, It's the person who abides by this new covenant word of Christ that is blessed. The true believer is the one who's brought forth by the word of truth, verse 18, who then in humility receives the word implanted, verse 21, and now carries it out. They prove it's really in there by living it out. They become an effectual doer. Also notice verse 25 says this person looks intently at this law. This phrase speaks of looking at something by bending over to carefully examine it. It was used of Mary at the empty tomb where she peered in and was studying to make sure it was really empty. And so James envisions a believer who's not just casually reading the Bible and hearing the word, but with great intention and eagerness, they're taking it in. 
This is the person who with great desire sits under the teaching of God's word because they just want to know what he said because they love him and, and his word. They know that this is the process God has ordained for them to grow. So they, they're delighted to hear the word and take it in. And you, know, you can really tell a lot from someone's body language if they're serious about taking in God's word or not. Some are laid back, settled in, as if they, they want to doze off, you know, make the time pass a little bit faster. Their minds and hearts are not engaged, which means their worship is merely a charade. But you contrast this with the person who's attentive. They're awake. They're aware. Their Bible is open. They're turning to passages. They're taking notes. Not because that makes them more righteous. It doesn't make you any more righteous to take notes during a sermon. But they're doing it because they want to look intently into the perfect law of the Lord. And experience has only shown me that, you know, it just so happens. These are the people who tend to take the word home, apply it to their lives, and grow. And all who look intently into the perfect word of God and abide by it, these are the ones who are blessed, who will be blessed. God always promises blessing for obedience. Christ himself said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it, Luke eleven twenty eight. Sin brings consequences in this life of pain and suffering and hardship. But if you're a doer of the word and you obey God by striving to put off sin, you will avoid a lot of those just consequences and the suffering of life brought on by our own sin. In that regard, you're, you're blessed. But this blessing for obedience goes even further. The doer of the word gains something more valuable, namely the assurance that they possess the ultimate blessing of salvation. You know, thinking of 1 John again, 1 John 3, 18 and 19. He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Our greatest peace and joy and blessing in life, the derived from the fact of our eternal salvation, and you see, the one who abides by God's word gains the greatest assurance that they possess the greatest blessing, and, and in that they are richly blessed. It's like Jesus again said in Matthew 7, you know, flipping the, the contrast. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. The one who hears the word of Christ and acts on it gains assurance that he will never fall. He or, he or she will be preserved until the end. And if this is you, then on that final day when you stand before Christ, he will not bid you depart, saying, I never knew you. He will not say, your, your life is a mess. Did you not get any of my letters? But he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so when all is said and done, if there is ever one sermon you have to apply, this is it. If you don't apply this message, you're in real trouble. But just apply this word from James and you will apply every sermon, every lesson you learn from scripture. Learn to really look intently into the word of God, the mirror of the soul. 
And there you will see all the places you need to grow. And as the word brings conviction by the power of the indwelling spirit, put off sin, put on righteousness, and you will grow. You'll bear fruit and you'll glorify God. And at times we all fall short and we're, we're thankful that God is so gracious with us. But take up this call to prove yourself a doer of the word and not merely a hearer. Now I can finish just a minute with a tie-in. I did this for Mother's Day. So I guess I can't let the dads off the hook entirely here for Father's Day. I didn't plan for this passage to land on Father's Day, but I think it's quite appropriate for all of us fathers, this reminder to be doers of the word. Where I would say that fathers especially need to heed this call to action. And that we need to accept the challenge to be doers of the word. For the fathers now, consider your example in the family. This is an essential part of your leadership in the home. The church and our society need men of God who lead their families in the word of truth, that they show their families Christ in the scriptures. But if you don't also show your family Christ by your life, well, then you tarnish the gospel. If you as a father are diligent to teach your children the word of God, but then you don't live out the word of God before them, it's like one step forward, but two really big steps back. Why should they come to follow their father's savior? But if you teach them the word and then you live it out before them, where they see in you a life transformed, they see you seeking righteousness and they even see all the times you blow it, but yet you repent, you ask for their forgiveness. They even see your humility. Well, it will make a real impact on their lives. You show them the power of the gospel on display to change lives and to restore lives. And God's going to use that in their lives. And even if you've not been living right, even now, if you were to repent and seek Christ and turn around, show them a transformation by the power of the gospel, God will use that too to show them his glory. You know, I've sadly observed and talked to many people who've walked away from the faith, maybe youths who grew up and then left the faith and turned away from the Lord. And the vast majority either grew up in churches filled with people who were hearers and not doers, or they came from homes filled with parents who were hearers and not doers. They were brought to Sunday school every Sunday. They never missed church. But at home, it's like the Bible wasn't real. And I would just pray that this would not be the case for our families and our church. As for my family, as for our church family, let's truly serve the Lord. Fathers, the church needs you to rise up and heed this call. And like I said, many times we've all blown it. We all fall short in many ways. But what matters most is what you do now. Even if your reform begins today, show your families and the world the life-transforming and joy-producing power of the gospel of Christ. And God will be glorified and you will be blessed. We've all heard this word from the Lord in James. You've received this letter, complete with its instruction. And the only question remaining now is, what will you do about it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we have a day in our culture to celebrate Father's Day, and we are thankful for, for the men, the fathers in the room. 
those who have raised us and shaped us, we are grateful for the, the role they've played in our lives. And then we pray that you would convict the men to continue to grow, to lead their families. Even if it starts today, show the world the, the power of Christ. But we thank you, Lord, even more, our, our Heavenly Father, for all that you've done for us. You knew how lost we were, how, how far short of your perfect law we, we fall. But you sent your son Christ to die for our sins, to rise unto new life, that we might be made new, that we might be called to yourself, that, that bad trees would be made into good trees, that we might bear fruit and so glorify our Father who is in heaven. And I pray this is true for us, Lord. Convict our hearts now. We, we need conviction and we need not turn away from it. And then by the power of the Spirit, let it produce fruit. Let this penetrate deep into the soil of our hearts that we would be now characterized as doers of your word. If any are deceived, I pray that by your mercy, you'd show them. That would be the, perhaps the greatest gift they could receive to, to, for the blinders to be lifted and for them to see that they've perhaps never known Christ. But as they come to him truly now, they would experience real peace and joy and victory over their sin. Their lives would change and you would be glorified. Lord, show your power among us today. And for us who do know Christ, may we just continue to follow him with desire, with joy, and with obedience. We love you, Lord. We love your word. We've seen what it's done for our lives. May it continue to work in us and live out in us as well. To your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.